0: There is a, a quote that I love that talks about how most issues of uh, disappointment come from somebody not living up to specific expectations. And really from that, what I've always gathered is that it's not necessarily so much what we do or how we do it. It's what somebody expected out of us versus what we did. And that's why I heard Bill um, touch on this at Max on a while ago and really wanted to dive deeper in this in this with him about how to set client expectations, especially for a northeastern family law firm. I mean, what better client expectations can you get than Bostonians dealing with some family law stuff? So for those who don't know, Bill Farias, Bill's the founder and CEO of Farias Family Law, a divorce and custody firm in Massachusetts, started his legal career as a prosecutor, then practiced criminal defense, and later committed exclusively to divorce and custody work. As of uh, just over, uh, I guess, just under two years ago now, in 2020, Bill started that transition from lawyering to focusing on building his firms. So now he loves working on the marketing, sales management, and otherwise optimizing his client services, especially when it comes to helping his team set the right expectations that they can exceed over and over again.
1: Bill, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Jordan. It's uh, a pleasure. I hope you feel that
0: way at the end of this. Oh, just just <laughs> kidding. Um. You're all right. Red so- fan,
1: so yeah, we're good.
0: There we go. All right, so uh, we'll dive into a little bit deeper with Bill's story, but before that, I wanna talk about our last episode. Um, last week we had Amy Gardner on of apochromatic who talked about do as I do the secrets to creating great leaders at your firm, especially you. So Amy talked to us about how we become better leaders, but also how we identify better leaders in our firm. So with that though, Bill, listen, man, I gotta, uh, you know, we always have the, the that similar story, the prosecutor, of criminal defense, and then truly finding the area of law you actually enjoy practicing. Walk me through a little bit of that journey.
1: Well, I am a a very competitive uh, person and I grew up playing a lot of sports and I started to figure out that like 99.9% of the people on this planet, I'm not going to be doing it on a professional level. And so I was looking for some other outlet for competition and trial work seemed like a lot of fun, right? I mean, you win, you lose, Um, there's competition. And so I started reading about it, learning about it. And of course, a lot of the the material out there was about criminal work. And so I became interested in criminal work, thought that that was what I was going to do uh, for a career. And so my thinking was that if I prosecute for a couple of years, I get a ton of experience. Uh, I mean, at least in Massachusetts, you, you literally just get thrown into a courtroom with a number of files, and you just try case after case. And so that's what happened while I prosecuted for a couple of years, just got a ton of experience got comfortable in court. And so the plan was to transition to criminal defense already be comfortable doing trials and litigating overall. And so I did that for a while, started picking up some family law cases and just gradually became more interested in family law than criminal defense. So I just kind of dwindled down the criminal defense practice, took my last case about two years ago. And that was about the time that I, so those two sort of events happened at the same time where I stopped taking criminal cases mainly because I wanted to really leap all in into building the firm, and I knew that it was just going to be difficult to do both. And so I made the transition, and um, I'm very happy about it. Yeah, I mean, look, the uh,
0: I think sports and law are really the only two adversarial professions left, right? Like, when you're talking to a brain surgeon, there's not another surgeon coming in trying to nick the uh, carotid artery while they're doing everything and whatnot. Um, they are very similar. but then yeah, I mean I, uh, I'd be interested to see how many criminal defense lawyers we have on this show, um, not as any lack of credit to them. I mean, I, I had the same beginning for you. Mine was you know prosecutor, criminal defense in the PI instead of in a family law, but it just it's a it's a hard it's a hard profession to run a business with, you know, between all the emergencies, people getting arrested, going all the courtrooms, you know, having to do the trials, having all those things happen. It's a lot harder to plan for than most other areas, block.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And there are just like at least in my area, basically, if you're not going to be doing either sex crimes or OUI, it's just going to be very difficult to make money doing criminal defense. Uh, I mean, you can do it, but it, it's a grind. There, there are a hundred other attorneys out there, kind of undercutting on price. Uh, I mean, there's just so much competition, the clientele, um, it, you know, in some of these other areas, again, if you're not in the the sex crimes and OUI space, uh, money is sometimes a problem. So I, I think you're right. It, it is not easy to, to build a firm doing criminal defense. It can be done. Some of our friends are doing it at a high level, uh, but it, it is a grind for sure.
0: When you say OUI,
1: operating on the influence? operating yeah OUI DUI you know typically working people pick up these charges and they have the money to to pay for an attorney so did
0: you have and so it's interesting you take you take your last criminal case about two years ago you start transitioning into running the firm about two years ago was there a specific event that happened that led you to this or was it just like the slow progression towards moderate you know where you are at now
1: uh well I was already leaning toward um building or or niching down to just family law and then um the the pandemic happened and what happened was these cases all got pushed out and so i already had a plan in place to um remove myself gradually then when the pandemic happened and there were these delays i just thought it was the perfect opportunity to just make the transition and so I just moved those clients on to, you know, other attorneys and just shut it down swiftly and quickly. So it went from a like a gradual transition, at least at the end. It went from a plan for a gradual transition to, okay, this is the perfect opportunity to just do this. I, I don't want to come back to these cases in four months, five months, you know, do work on them again. Th- then they're not going to be resolved for another eight months, and that's just going to push everything back. So so that's, that's what it was. It was a, a plan for a gradual transition. And then the pandemic just speeded that or sped that whole thing up and uh, made me sort of rethink how I would go about it. And it worked out. And of course, Bill, you know,
0: the uh, as those cases started getting stale post-pandemic, all of the uh, slowdowns would be your fault as the defense attorney on the case, right?
1: If you don't set proper expectations, then yes. Well, and
0: I mean also from judges and from prosecutors and from victims, let alone from your clients.
1: Oh, all right. So I I thought you were talking about from, uh, yeah, clients, but I I can see that happening also. Yes, it's just something I didn't want to be involved in. Um, It was just going to drag this out way longer than I wanted it to. And so when it comes to setting these expectations with clients,
0: where does that really start? Like, is that something you're doing before they ever call you? Is that something that starts in the first call? Like, what's the what's that first expectation that you can set for a client
1: so this goes this goes to the sort of exceptions to how you should go about this uh, or one of the exceptions which i think is sales so i don't believe that it's a great idea so certainly if we back up to marketing you want to attract the right type of people obviously you want to map out your avatar/ideal client and that's who you want calling you but i i do think it's a mistake to delve too much into setting expectations during the sales call because i just feel like you're, you're going to lose a lot of people people want certainty people want to hear about the positives and certainly that doesn't mean that you take somebody on who has an unrealistic expectation that you identify at that point That's not what I'm suggesting. Certainly, if it comes up during the sales process, then it needs to be addressed because you just don't want to sign that person up under those circumstances. But I think generally, if you delve into, at least to the degree that I do now of setting expectations, if you do that during the sales process, I feel like you're just going to lose these people. So the answer is, it's once they sign up and once they're onboarded. That's when it really starts. That's when they should really um, get the bulk of the information about how you operate, how th- the whole thing works and so on.
0: I want to back up though for a second, cause like literally, if I was writing you a script, I would not have written your line about marketing better than you just delivered there. Um, so I love that. I, so what Bill was talking about was having that idea of that ideal client, that avatar in terms of your marketing. So you're attracting the person who's already going to vibe with the firm, who's already going to have the
1: right expectations.
0: Is that something that you all have gone deep enough that we can chat about for a little bit?
1: Absolutely. It's something that I'm making a concerted effort to do. I mean, I have a team that um, does our social media marketing, and um, I also work with an individual who is helping out with our SEO. I am doing the majority of the, the marketing for SEO in terms of recording videos, answering frequently asked questions. And one significant change that I've made was that when I was doing this about, I would say, I don't know, three, four years ago, I was just generally thinking of questions that a family law client would have, or someone thinking about getting divorced would have. And then a switch went off maybe about a year and a half ago, a couple of years ago. And I figured out that a lot of these questions that I was providing answers for were not geared toward my ideal client. And so what I what I did was I just really started getting in the shoes of the person that I would want calling the firm and thinking about what specific questions does that person have.
0: So like the, how do I keep the other spouse from having any contact with the kids? How do I like stuff like that? Like the real aggressive stuff?
1: so I'll give you an example like but it's 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 easy for me to record like for for divorce we want to attract higher net worth clients we want people who have good incomes have you know half a million at least half a million a million in assets things to sort through and so one you know a video that I would record back in the day would probably be like how can I lower my child support payment what happens if i don't have enough income to pay child support, right? So these messages are geared toward people who are probably not going to have the money to to hire us. Whereas now it's more about how does a divorce work when I have properties in multiple States? Gotcha. Yeah. Do Do I have exposure to alimony and child support because my income is so high? And, and so those are the the tweaks and adjustments that I've made um, that I think have gone a long way toward drawing the, the the clients that we want. And I will tell you,
0: as as smart as that is for every area of law, it's that much smarter for family law because you're literally splitting up all these assets, and there are so many of those cases where there's just you know not enough to go around, where there's you know a uh, hundred fifty thousand dollars in assets and five hundred thousand dollars in in debts. And then you're trying to figure out how do you apportion this stuff. So it's doubly, it's doubly helpful. Not only their ability to pay, but their ability to actually be able to get divorced and financially afford it and pass things along and still, you know, handle all their other financial responsibilities.
1: Yeah. And you just don't want your sort of intake unit clogged up with cases that you're not going to take, right? Those are resources that you have to use to screen those out, to weed them out, to refer them out. I mean, referrals, okay, but generally obviously you want to be attracting the people who are going to hire you and so that's a shift that i've made i guess you can call it relatively recently in the, in, in the last couple of years yeah and not that i wasn't not that i wasn't asking these questions and producing content uh, that was targeting that clientele before but now i'm just more narrowly focused and i'm not doing it as broadly so that i'm not attracting all these other leads that we don't want so then when it comes time to that sales call, you're talking about kind of limiting the
0: expectation setting there. Are you breaking up the expectations between like the results of the case versus the experience they can expect to have with the firm?
1: Uh, are you talking during the sales call? Yes. Well, the sales call is mostly is, is mostly focused on, and we've done a lot of work. I mean, granted, we, we still have work to do on sales, but we did a lot of training on sales and I revamped that whole unit relatively recently. And so number one, it's about listening, right? Especially family law clients. They just want someone to hear their story. I'm sure. Well, it's like this in probably all practice areas, but especially one that's so emotionally driven Right. these people just want an ear. And so number one is after you have figured out that this is someone who um, would benefit from your services and is an ideal client. It's really just letting them talk and active listening and empathy. And then we gather some information to assess a little bit deeper, um, whether we can help them and how, provide when applicable, when it's appropriate, a little bit of information about sort of how it would work, from a macro level and explaining the the benefits of working with the firm. So this is what you would get signing up with us. Here are the main, you get great communication, you get experience. Here's how many cases we've handled. Uh, Here are the, um, here's an overview of the reviews we have online. Uh, Here is what the legal team would look like. So it's really kind of on a macro level, explaining what the benefits are and, and how it works, but we don't get a lot into the the details or the weeds of how it's gonna work and what they should expect again, because I just don't think it's the right time for that.
0: I, I totally agree. I do like the one thing I would add to that, I'm, I'm sure you do this, is like the accessibility. You know, You can expect the phone to be answered 24 hours a day or from eight to six or whatever the hours are, And if not, you can expect to see if call back in a certain time. I know you touched on that, but I mean, I think that's a huge expectation that you can set early for clients, assuming you are actually going to answer the phone or going to call them back in the timeline you tell
1: them. Absolutely. And that goes under our communication. So there there are like five topics that I hit. So that's communication, right? It's really easy to contact us and uh, there's always going to be someone here for you um and so i agree with you 100% that they especially dealing with law firms that are notoriously bad at that terrible at that that's something people want to hear at the outset and so
0: as you transition into you know this onboarding process as you start at, at that point correct me if i'm wrong you're then starting to set some expectations about the results of the case with them
1: so that's when that's when we really get into um the, the details of what they can expect, including results. And of course, it's going to come up at that time because you're helping these people plan, you're setting goals, and naturally, people want to hear, you know, how do you think this is going to turn out? And that's one of the more difficult sort of areas um, to manage. And so it, it's taken a lot of practice, a lot of training to get better at this but generally i think it's effective to use ranges um in family law there is a a ton of uncertainty like these judges just have so much discretion that it really is not misleading to say almost anything can happen really Uh, and that's how it is right especially at that stage where you haven't really had the opportunity to dig into to everything right? Because we're still learning about what's happening. We're still reviewing documents. Um, We're still, we haven't even heard from the other side. And so we explain this to the client. Uh, So when they want some type of prediction, my staff knows to stay as far away from that as possible. Obviously, if something is black and white, then we're going to give them some idea of what they can expect. But We try whenever possible to avoid predicting because it just doesn't work, right? I mean, inevitably you're gonna hear something else from the other side, like family law is so nuanced and there are always two sides to the story. So it's very dangerous to listen to a client for, even even a full half hour, 45 minute hour session and say, okay, here's what I think is gonna happen in this case. It's a bad idea. They're always going to remember the the parts that are most optimistic and favorable, and they're going to forget everything else. And they're going to hold you to that. And if you're short of that, even a little bit short of that, they're just not going to be happy.
0: I think that's where um, one of the best things that you get to kind of hang your hat on there is the law, right? Like the law. There's a whether it's a presumption of fifty-fifty time sharing, whether it's a um, whether it's from PI, you know. Uh, some of the definitions for what is and what isn't bad faith, if it's criminal defense, you know, you can talk about some of the maximum penalties, you can talk about an experience, you know, either with that judge or with those charges in that county. But you're right, I mean, you do always have to have to uh put the the lawyer independent or the caveat on it about the uh the ability to go above and beyond whatever the rules say in whatever circumstances.
1: Yeah, I agree, and I think it's really important to sort of pair that with um and and to add to that the steps that you're going to take like to keep them focused on positive things that you're going to be doing um like we call the family law courts here the wild west because like anything goes like we, any family law attorney will tell you they've walked into court with cases they they thought would be a slam dunk and just walked out like what just happened and the opposite right and so i um utilize that to help clients understand the the nature of this practice area, but also reminding them that we do have a solid plan in place, right? It's not just telling the client, hey, we have no idea what's going to happen. Let's just go see what, obviously that's going to instill no confidence and they're going to be regretting paying you a retainer. So you have to remind them of, look, here are the steps that we're taking. We're confident that this is the right direction because of a b and c here's what we're doing and so when they hear that and and you focus more on the micro and sort of redirect them away from trying to predict results to these are the next steps we should take a b c and these are the efforts we're making they're fine with that they're not going to go back whoa but i want to know no because now they know you're doing the work for them and you're moving them in the right direction and at the end of the day, that's really what they want.
0: I love that. The uh, really walking them through the next steps and, and how those next steps give you control to get what you want or to get a better offer or res- resolution, you know, whatever you're going to call it. Um, where do you like, I want to phrase this question the right way to, to some extent, you know, turning clients down is somewhat of a luxury, right? Like if you really need the money, you put up with a lot of stuff you shouldn't put up with. And sometimes you end up in a worse situation by those means. So for that firm owner that maybe isn't as established as you are, hasn't built this team, what insight would you give them on, you know, if they're struggling in that moment where the client wants, obviously not an unethical promise, but like if you know the client wants a little bit more certainty than you feel comfortable giving, how do you make the decision on, you know, giving it, not giving it, firing the client immediately? Like what's that thought process?
1: I think it's really, uh, at least at the outset it's really a gut feeling about whether you're on the same page with the client and so if you have a conversation because a lot of the i mean most of these people haven't been through this before and most people are reasonable and so if you have that conversation with them and say look this is how it really works and and this is what you can expect and you get the sense that they're in agreement with you and they trust you, then you sign them up. If you have that sort of nagging feeling, either because of the follow up questions they have or just the position that they're taking, that they're not going to be comfortable with it and that it's going to be an issue, I think, regardless of where you're at financially, you have to cut bait because it's going to be a problem. It, it, it's going to result in headaches. Um, probably bad reviews maybe bar complaints and so um as much as possible you want to be assessing that thoroughly at the outset again when it comes up if it's if it's obvious that there is an expectations problem i think you have to be pretty confident that they're good with it and that they trust you and then from there if you get that feeling and the issue comes back up, that's a serious red flag, right? Like if the next conversation or the one after that, they're going back to that, obviously that's a sign that you're not in alignment. And that's the next best time to cut bait and let them go.
0: Yeah, I want to, uh, so a mentor of mine shares a story that I think is so on point. So he's like six months into opening up his own firm. It was actually, it was uh, family law. And has a client come in, you know, talks to the potential client, gets exactly what we're talking about here, kind of that uneasy gut feeling, um, and so he throws out the the fu number, right, the the twenty five thousand dollar retainer with the raised fee. Client's like, yeah, sure, no problem. And he's like, all right, you know, uh, give me, let me let me type something up, let me go through this, whatever. And it, that was on whatever it was Thursday or Friday. So client calls on Sunday, hey, like, where's the thing, you know, come on over, I want to show you some stuff, I'll give you the check, whatever, and just gets that feeling of something's gonna be wrong here. Ends up turning the client down. Client goes to another attorney in town, who at that point more experienced, known to be a very good lawyer, goes through the case over two years. That attorney bills who knows how much. Case is over. Files a bar complaint. Gets all their money refunded, and the attorney has to take a fifty-hour client uh, management seminar or whatever. So here's a you know two hundred thousand dollar windfall, windfall or whatever it is going right back out the door plus having to spend a whole week on learning this stuff from the, through the bar.
1: That's exactly why you need to make the right decision and, and go with your gut sooner rather than later. And I know sometimes it, it can be painful financially, but I think you have to remind yourself that there's the potential for it to be a lot more painful and that story is a perfect example. And so what we've done beyond that is once a client is onboarded, we actually have a flagging system. So if issues come up, we've actually been doing this in Lawmatics where we have a custom field for red flags. And we have just like any red flag you can imagine um, is listed on there. And so- Give us what are some of the most common ones? Um, So there are, financial issues. Like if someone is not paying the the retainer, right? It might be a messy case. Um, we need them to, for them to replenish the retainer. They're not getting back to us right away. We have, um, questions about misrepresentation, right? That's a big one. Even if it's not an outright lie, if we start to suspect that there isn't transparency and they're not telling the truth, that's a pretty significant red flag. Um, we have negative feelings toward the other parent that's a big one right like unresolved emotional issues that are going to impact this person's ability to be rational that's another one so i think those are probably the the most common ones i'll
0: i'll throw i'll throw my favorite one or maybe least favorite one what answer is going to be better for my case (laughs) That's my favorite, that's my (laughs) least favorite, favorite, whatever, however you want to call it, because like the truth is going to be what's best for your case, because I promise you, you're not going to hold up whatever stupid lie this is, and it's going to come out in the most inopportune moment. Uh, But also that's a much longer conversation about, you know, honesty and attorney-client privilege and yada, yada, yada.
1: So so this is why we've had to kind of um, beef up the onboarding process with material about exactly that topic, which is transparency, being honest with your attorney and helping, of course, making it about them and helping them understand how badly it can hurt them if they don't do this the right way. And if they're not transparent with us um, and what it can ultimately cost them. But that's part of our onboarding now is we don't assume that people, you know, because people, They always say like family law can bring out the worst in people. Divorce can bring out the worst in people. They feel like they're backed into a corner sometimes. And so people can act out of character. Um, So I'm not going to assume that these people are going to handle this properly. And so especially in family law where you have financial disclosures that, that are so important and issues involving custody, we give them a lot of material on just how important this is and why when we onboard them. So they know that if there is an issue during the case, we might just let them go because they already sort of got a warning on onboarding. So if they're going to make that conscious decision to, to misrepresent, then they're out. And look, the
0: best or worst thing to happen, I, I'm holding up my phone for anybody listening to the podcast. This is the great equalizer. You know, you telling your attorney about how uh, difficult it is for you to live your life and you'll never find somebody else. And then there's, surveillance video of you with a, uh, you know, with a new significant other, or you telling your attorney that you can't carry anything. And there's video of you, you know, lugging around some 30 pound weights and in your garage and whatnot, like. Assume uh,
1: you're being watched. Assume that every single text message and email that you send will end up in front of a judge. And Hey, uh,
0: you know, maybe this is too soon, but if you're Alex Jones, it it certainly (laughs) will for that, uh, two year period what could, a not, could not could not ask for a better person for that to happen to although unfortunately i think his attorneys will end up bearing the brunt of uh so much of it but we'll see what goes on there
1: yep all right That's so great. what are i'm sorry no i just said agreed oh so what
0: are some other times to set the right expectations or the right expectations to set with clients like walk me through some of that stuff and then i want to transition into what it looks like when you've set the right expectations?
1: Well, so obviously the outset and onboarding is is most important, but then after that, it's really important to adjust expectations when there are changes in the case or significant events. So right, just think about it generally. Maybe you have a hearing and there's an order. There's a new order from, from the judge on custody or parenting time or whatever it is. That is another great opportunity to take that extra time to put in writing and have a conversation with the client about what this means, how it might affect what they can expect to get out of this case in terms of either parenting time or custody or financially. So I think just generally having this approach of, look, when there is a significant change or when something happens, you have to kind of put yourself in, in the client's shoes and ask yourself, like, how does this affect my perception of what's happening and what I can expect going forward and what I can expect the result to be. And you need to meet that head on and, and not just kick the can down the road or cause it's very easy to just send a quick email. Hey, you got, you know, you got the results, you got the order. Um, let me know if you have any questions, bad idea, right? You, you have to take those extra steps to have the difficult conversations with the client what can sometimes be difficult conversations to help readjust their expectations and you're going to be much better off long term because although they're difficult conversations to have you're increasing the likelihood that the client is going to be happy at the end right so this goes back to what you talked about at the beginning and i boiled it down to sort of a formula which is happiness equals reality what's happening minus expectations so it sits in that gap and so the higher and more unreasonable the expectations the smaller that gap the more likely it is that they're going to be unhappy so you really have to do work throughout the case to push down those expectations to manage them properly so that you optimize your chances of having a happy client at the end what was that happiness equals what reality minus expectations
0: There we go thank you yeah as you're saying that, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that part. Um, so so yeah. the
1: whole point is you can have two people with, you're going to have two people with the same reality, meaning they got the same result on the case. They got the same level of service. If one has unrealistic expectations and the other had expectations set and properly managed, the person who had the expectations set and properly managed is going to be way happier, right? There's just going to be that bigger gap between reality and expectations, whereas the other expectations inflated, not managed, even though it's the same result, you have two clients with totally different levels of happiness. And I've seen this bear out.
0: So, um, I want to, let me set this up. So I'm on this huge Annie do kick uh, thinking and bets kick. I read the book and like, I'm so on that. There's, she's a, uh, world series of poker winner. And so she talks about the difference between skill and luck. And so like you drive through a red light and you don't get T-boned because, uh, that's luck. You drive through a green light and you get T-boned because somebody else ran through the red, that's luck. You drive through a green light and you don't get T-boned because everybody else followed the rules, that's skill. So from the standpoint of expectations, it comes up the same way too, right? Because if the law changes, if the judge changes, if, you know, something outside your control, as well as if you ask great questions of mandatory disclosure and you find out exactly the right information um, to nail the other side or to get your client exactly what they deserve, however you want to phrase it. At the point that you're having to change the expectations for things that are in their control versus not in their control, does that change the conversation for you?
1: So can uh, can you uh, like just rephrase the question in terms of what's in their control and not? I'm yeah. just having trouble understanding that part of so it. So let
0: me. That that's totally fine. I was it was way too long of a lead-in. Um. So all right, in the state of Florida, I want to say it was four or five years ago. They changed the alimony stuff in terms of taxes. So you used to be get, you used to be able to use alimony to offset taxes. Now you, or you used to be able to, uh, whatever it was, they changed it. Same
1: in mass that you used to get a tax deduction for alimony. Now you don't. And, And I believe that's on the federal level. Okay, so even better. So you have a client and that's the situation. There
0: is nothing that you have done differently to change the case. There's nothing that's your fault. There's a law that's gonna change this thing. And it, look, for some people, it was hundreds of thousands of dollars in a difference. Is that a different way? Like, do you have a different conversation on that versus they lied to you and it gets found out in a hearing and now the results look different? That was something that was in control? Or does, do you have the same conversation with them when the expectations have changed, regardless of if it's their fault or not?
1: Yeah, I think it's just generally anything that could potentially impact their Happiness with your service or their perception of the value they got, you need to be having those conversations, right? Whether it's something that they control or it's beyond their control, if it's going to potentially impact the end result or even their journey, I think you need to have that conversation with them. Okay. So,
0: any other tips, tricks, insight on setting the right expectations? And then we'll move on to. How you know you're doing a good job with this like the transformation at the end of it
1: well i i um i broke down sort of some areas to target some sort of topics that i think are worth covering in the onboarding process and those are just quickly operations i think it's really important to explain to these people at the beginning, how you run your shop, exactly how it works, right? What time you open, what time you close, what times people are accessible to them. Can they expect emails on weekends? Uh, What's the turnaround time for A, B or C? So just generally how you operate, I think is really important to explain to them upfront. That's the source of a lot of frustration because people pay a lot of money generally for attorneys and so if you're not going over this information with them at the outset, again, they're going to set their own expectations. And those expectations are probably going to be high because they're paying pretty good money. So talk about your operations. Talk about how you run. How you do it is not as important as educating them about it and them knowing up front. <clears throat> and Another one, hold on, I want to jump in before you go on. And look, if your,
0: if your firm is not accessible 24-7 you will get clients that don't hire you because they want somebody who is, but that's better than them hiring you and then blowing you up on the weekends when you don't want to be accessible. And then filing the bar complaint that you said you'd respond on Saturdays when you don't, and then writing the bad review that you didn't get back to them at four o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. So like, you know, live, live your truth, but also let clients know what your truth is to say whether or not they want to be on board with
1: it. Exactly. Don't assume they know. Don't assume that the hours you have up on your Google, my business page is enough because it isn't, that's not going to give them the info they need to know how best to work with you. So put in the work up front and teach them and you're going to avoid 95% of the problems that way. Um, lawyers, hold on. I want to give one, one tip to our lawyer listeners. You can
0: schedule send on your email. So if you get like I don't know you get in I, me I, I blew two tires on uh, driving a, about a year a little a year and a half ago and I was sitting there on the side of the road for four hours and I was like, you know what I'll go through some emails but you can schedule send those for Monday so the client doesn't expect you to respond on a Saturday at 11 o'clock in the in, you know in the afternoon in the morning all the time um, so there's ways where even if you are working you can set the right expectation for clients based upon when the email goes out based upon when you respond to the email based upon, you know when you set your automated follow-up to happen whether it's you know at eight o'clock or within business hours or whatever
1: that's a great point because you're, you're communicating to them hey i'm available at this time and if that's not what you want then certainly you shouldn't be doing it and you should utilize those tools um another one is time frames and th- this is another common sort of area um that uh, people have problems um with is Explaining to people what they can expect in terms of, first of all, how long the process takes, how long certain events during the the process um, or on their journey, how long those take, um, what the turnaround time, for example, might be for uh, a judge to issue a decision, um, how long you can expect it to take um, for the other side to respond to something, and so on and so forth. So just think about timeframes. These people have no idea. And again, if you're not talking to them about it or giving them some material, like we're doing more videos, diagrams, sending that over, giving them the educational material, it's accessible. You're much less likely to have complaints and upset clients if you explain the timeframes. And lean into again, the uncertainty. Hey, when you're working with a government entity, when you're working with the courts, we have no control over their response time. So here's what we've seen. You might get it in two weeks. You might get it in two months. We've had it take as long as four months. And so these people are not shocked when it takes forever uh, for something to happen or for them to get something.
0: You're giving Um, me, uh, you're giving me family law PTSD. So in my, uh, in my legal career, I want to say I did eight family law hearings, which for me was like seven too many. Um, one of them though, we do this hearing on Thursday and literally th- that Saturday was the Pulse shooting. So like I live two miles from Pulse in Orlando. The courthouse is maybe a mile from it. And so of course, Monday morning, my client's like, when can we expect the, you know, the order on our thing from Thursday? And I was like, I don't know, man. Like, there's 50 people that just got murdered in Orlando over the weekend. It's sort of a big deal. Like, let's give the judge two weeks before we, and and listen to the judge's credit. I think he got it to us like that Friday, which I thought was quick considering everything else. But like, the client was like, "Oh, yeah, I guess maybe like the largest mass shooting in history at the time might be something that might you know slow down my federal law order." And I was like, I don't
1: "Think so? Absolutely." But you know, this is this is applicable to other practice areas too, right? I mean, I remember doing. Uh, criminal work. And it, it was the same principles. It was just uh, a lot of uncertainty. And you need to be just comfortable leaning into that and not feeling like you have to have all of the answers and that you have to give the client certainty all the time. Because the trade-off is they'll be happier when they hear that coming out of your mouth, but they're going to be unhappy when it falls short in any way. Totally. So the, the, so we talked about timeframes, the process overall. So just think of it as the, the whole client journey from start to finish. Like this is how this whole thing works. This is what you can expect. Um, costs, I think is super important. Lawyers hate talking about money and it's so important upfront to explain what your policies are, what's acceptable, what isn't, what's, what's the range of possibilities in terms of what they might pay Um, have these conversations up front, give them the material up front. um, And then we already talked about results. So those are the areas that, that I would target.
0: The uh, I'm I'm channeling the, the Marco Brown rule number one, get paid, but seriously, like it is amazing to me how many, like it's family law, right? And I figure 95% of family law attorneys are going to bill hourly how many clients are going to be like, wait a minute, I thought, you know, the 3,500, I thought that covered everything. And you're like, no, that was just the initial retainer. Um, no matter how many times you say it, no matter how many, no matter the fact that they signed it in the contract, no matter whatever else, you're still going to get that. So I love being so, so specifically over the top with the financial expectation.
1: Absolutely. All right. So
0: we've got a, let's call it a little bit less than 10 minutes left I want to talk about the transition here, the transformation, right? So if you've been setting good, if you, let me rephrase this. If you have not been setting good expectations, you have that complete litany of client feedback between, like you talked about, the exact same result being happy or not based upon what they expected. But as you start setting better expectations and as you start exceeding those expectations, what does that look like? like? What's the transformation that the law firm owner sees when they know that they're nailing this issue?
1: I think the bottom line is, although you should certainly always be striving to get better, to provide better service, to get better results for clients, the, you, you start to see that the results don't matter as much because the clients get the education upfront about what's possible and they don't have these inflated expectations. So just the bottom line is overall, you just get way fewer complaints and way fewer unhappy clients, which means just more positive reviews, right? Like there have been cases where it hasn't been great. Like the result hasn't been great where I've said to myself, you know, I talked to the associate about it and I say to myself, this isn't really isn't great. Like objectively, if you step back and look at it, it could have gone better. But the client is still happy because they got all of this info up front. They're not, they're not sandbagged with this, they're not blindsided. And so, from like a macro level, that's really the major difference. Is think about it this way: you just you just kind of buy yourself more room for error or more room for shortcomings, which are inevitable, no matter how good your operation, no matter how good a job you're doing of training, you're not always going to get it 100% right. It's not always going to be, you know, the optimal result. And so what you're doing is you're still having clients walk away happy, even when it's not the absolute best outcome.
0: Well, and I always love it, kind of from that game theory standpoint, right? Like, if to to boil family law down to a simple uh, analogy, if there's a hundred dollars in the pot and you're going to split it between two people, then like fairness dictates it be fifty fifty. But how many people think they deserve ninety five of the hundred dollars? And then you know, at the point that you get your client seventy five percent of it, so seventy five out of the hundred bucks, whether that client is super ecstatic because you doubled, you know, whatever you're you're fifty percent over the halfway point or that client super aggravated because you're 50% away from them getting everything or 25% whatever like that's on you like that's where you get to set the expectation to determine whether or not they appreciate
1: that absolutely and it was the same thing when i did criminal right it's you know there's going to be a plea what am i looking at like what is the the range of possibilities you know you're an idiot if you're optimistic and giving the client the best case scenario because once the client hears the actual numbers, inevitably, they're going to think you're the, you're the moron who had no idea that this was coming. Um, and so, again, I think this applies to, to many practice areas. W- wherever there's this sort of uncertainty, wherever there's uncertainty, and and that's in a lot of practice areas. That's why people hire lawyers. If there was so much certainty, um, you know, outside of like transactional practices, th- th- this is a, a very common issue. Totally. All right. So we put these things in place. We're getting happier
0: clients. That we can see that in terms of fewer complaints, in terms of more reviews, in terms of referrals from clients. Like, what are some of the other positive benefits?
1: Yeah. I absolutely, um, absolutely. Um, recommendations, uh, referrals. We have we have a net promoter score process where we reach out to the client during the life of the case to collect feedback. And so those have been generally more positive. Uh, So overall, they're happier with the work that the attorney's doing. They're happier with the work the the paralegal's doing. And again, I think this is a a lot of it is because they're they're getting this material up front. And so they're just not as uh, surprised during the process. Um, So that's mainly it is just think about it as... Happier clients, and you can't go wrong if you're putting a system in place that's overall going to generate happier clients. There are a number of benefits, right? They're easier to work with. They're going to pay on time. They're going to go tell other people about you. They're going to leave the five-star review, and the benefits go on and on. And
0: I will say the the best part about happy clients is not just that they make referrals, but it's who they refer. Because like you have those moments where your clients, like, oh my God, Bill and Bill's team responded to all my emails within 24 hours. It was amazing. They did, they really explained this to me. So, when that person's hiring and when they get to that case where you have the hearing on Friday and they're freaking out about it over the weekend, they can sit back and be like, well, you know, like my friend so and so said they'll get back to me soon. So, I should expect, you know, something from them on Monday or Tuesday. I don't have to worry. You know, I'm not a I'm not losing my mind. I'm not blowing the firm up over the weekend things like that. Like you really get a better like it it snowballs into a better and better experience. Absolutely. All right, anything else you want to make sure we cover or
1: can we uh move to our wrap up? No, we can wrap it up. I think uh I think we we hit on everything. There we go. All well, right. The only uh, the only other thing I would say is yeah. take the time to train your people on this. That that is that is something that's important because I think there's a tendency for people Or at least in my experience, people will hear this and say, okay, I get it. Don't assume that your team gets it. Because again, a lot of this involves uncomfortable conversations and people generally want to avoid that. Even the best workers, the best teammates, who likes to have uncomfortable conversations? And so training them in this principle, explaining the principle, explaining the benefits, I think is super important.
0: Totally agree. All right. So for everybody who's enjoyed Bill's episode, uh, we're going to have Molly McGrath on next week. Molly from uh, Empowering and Hiring Solutions. Molly's going to talk to us about quality versus quantity, growing your team's skills. So in essence, how do you not just have personal growth, but how do you get everyone on the team to personally grow in their skills, in their abilities? And then obviously if you do that, then you get exponential growth towards the company. We'll be featuring Molly on uh, next Thursday, so 8.15 at 45 Eastern time. So uh, about an hour and a half sooner than you watched Bill's episode, you can hear Molly share how you grow the skills of your team members to exponentially grow the whole firm. That being said though, Bill, for anybody who's been listening to the last, let's call it 55 minutes of this, if they remember nothing you said, except what you're about to share now, what would be your biggest piece of advice, your most important takeaway? to help other lawyers be the exhibit A of a successful lawyer such as yourself?
1: Setting and managing expectations will exponentially increase your client's happiness and just improve the overall quality of your business. And so take the time to work on onboarding material for clients, be creative, get it in writing, record videos, create some charts, make sure that these people get the info they need up front so that they know what to expect. You'll have a happier client and also make sure you train your staff on it so that everybody's working in sync. And dude, I,
0: I freaking love what you talked about right there. Um, make people are going to, it's going to impact people differently in different formats. So have the Q and A and blog post, but like Bill said, have charts, have it in video, have have it in a couple of different ways. Even though it says the same thing, because you'll get people that want to be visual learners, you'll get people that want to look at pictures, you'll get people that want to read, you'll get people that want to follow the video, um, and from an SEO standpoint, you also get the content among you know all of that stuff. So you can there's added marketing benefits there too. All right, yeah. cool, man. So for anybody who's been listening to this and watching this. Who wants to learn more of your wonderful wisdom, or maybe who has a family law case in Massachusetts, they want to send your way. What's the best place for them to get in touch with you?
1: So they can just email me at befarious at fariousfamilylaw.com. And I'm also on the social channels at Farious Family Law. And for anybody who is watch who is listening to this, not watching,
0: it's F-A-R-I-A-S. Farious. F-A-R-I-A-S. Cool. Thank you so much, Bill. And thanks to everybody who is watching and listening. We'll see you
1: back next week for Molly's episode.